Hello and welcome to KPMG's Advice Worth Keeping podcast series, where we hear about leading practices in privacy. I am Steve Stein again, partner and co-lead of KPMG's Information Governance and Privacy Practice in the U.S. And joining me today is Orson Lucas, who puts the co in my co-lead for our practice. So Orson, my partner, my friend, thank you so much for coming here today and welcome to Chicago. Thank you, Steve. Really pleased to be here with you today and trying to slide in at the tail end before it gets too cold up here. I'm a Florida guy, so anything below about 50 is cold for me and it's starting to trend that way now. Yeah, I think as we track guests, we may have sort of a blackout period in uh, December, January, February here in our innovation lab in Chicago, but really happy to have you today. Absolutely. Thank you. Orson, we are going to discuss today how some companies are developing large-scale efforts to embed privacy in the customer experience and trying to use privacy almost as a marketing tool and business differentiator. And we'll talk a little bit about how some companies have used the EU GDPR and the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, as a catalyst to look at privacy differently and deal with privacy differently. Orson, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your personal journey in helping companies develop, you know, really some of these sophisticated privacy programs and how you're starting to see some of our largest clients attack privacy differently? Really just a few points. I think, one, this is something that today is still unique enough for people to really get right at any kind of scale. Even our largest and most complex clients, I think, are still working very aggressively towards something that is meaningful. It meets both the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law and is well integrated into the customer experience as well. So I'll come back to that in just a moment. My journey, since you asked, I've been doing this now for about 15 years, really started back around 2004, 2005, when there were a few regulations out there, but primarily financial services and healthcare focused and were very uh, limited and narrow in their focus. And as a result of that, I think a lot of companies really treated privacy not as as something that they had to do, but is really just something that was nice to do. Whereas now I think that you're seeing some of the emerging regulations like GDPR, like the California Consumer Privacy Act and others really push this into the realm of something that is both required, but also table stakes. And I think to your point, there are some things that we can do that we're working with clients on today to really help them to make privacy a differentiator to their customers and support the customer experience. There's been some changing expectations of customers. And I don't know if you've got a point of view about differentiating European customer expectations from United States focused or United States consumers, but I think that's an interesting prelude is to try to match, well, what does a consumer expect? And is that consistent with these new regulations or are the regulations pushing the consumers? I think it's really more the latter. When you think about the GDPR in Europe, it was an extension of and really a response to what is seen as a fundamental human right, really a cultural value with privacy. Whereas in the U.S., I think it's it's evolved in a very different way, such that while I think customers are becoming more and more attuned with some of the large-scale data breaches that are out there, it's still not really something that's first and foremost because these types of rights have never been available to them before. So As you and I were talking before, one of the things that we talked about and one of the questions that you asked me, which I think is a really astute one, is how do we think customers are going to react to this? And honestly, it's a bit of the tail wagging the dog, I think. I think that once customers become attuned to the 
types of rights that they have, which when you look at the way that some of our customers built their programs for GDPR, they extended those same rights globally as well. So when you go to the likes of a Facebook or a Google or a lot of these other tech companies that are out there, you can go out there today and pull down a file with your information in it. So customers are starting to become more attuned and more aware to it, but I think it's really going to smack a lot of them in the face when you have however many millions of California customers that come January 1st have this additional uh, right. Analysts often talk about, I don't know if it's a catchphrase at this point, of embedding privacy in the experience. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Like, what does that look and feel like? One of the interesting things that I'm seeing, I think that the most important thing is, is starting with the premise of consumer trust and using privacy as a tool to help build and expand that. The reason that I start there is when you think about the way that companies address privacy programs, it's not just about checking the box to say that certain things were done that meet the regulatory requirement and that we have, for example, a notice out on our webpage, so we've done that and now we're done. Mm -hmm. It's really more about meeting the spirit of the law and using this as a tool to better engage with customers. And the reason that I start there is there are a number of things that branch off of that. It's making sure that privacy, for example, is not an afterthought, but that is embedded in the design of tools the processes, products, really the overall ecosystem within your environment and outside of your environment. It's about making notice and the way that you communicate and interact with customers very meaningful, clear, and unambiguous around this as well. So GDPR had some specific expectations around this, but regardless, it's a better practice. One of the things I'm seeing, though, that's a little bit unique to where some of the thought leaders are in this space is given that this is a regulation, it's typically compliance is driven by lawyers and by subject matter experts, whether they be IT or marketing people or others. What's often overlooked that I think is a really interesting way of thinking about this is actually bringing in customer experience and user experience engineers into the process and really working with them hand in hand as you're developing these regulatory tools to allow them to think about, for example, what's actually in the download file? Is it clear to the customer? Is there a need to have some kind of a translation table? How does the customer actually pull that file down? What kind of format is it in? Is it in a JSON format or a CSV? All these little things that you can have a lawyer make some assumptions around and say, yeah, this is what I think. But working with teams who this is their job and this is what they do is a really big value add from what I've seen. Some of your work has been pretty complex, right? So these are large teams, multidisciplinary. Is it too complex? Or is it just by necessity, if you want it to become something that's automated, it has to be complex? Even if it's not automated, I think by nature it's complex. And the reason is because companies are trying to respond to these things and put in place these processes that take years and years and years to build and build right, so think about things like, I know your background, data retention, thinking about those types of concepts, thinking about data governance and inventory, thinking about data flows, all that kind of stuff that has been out there for years, trying to not only do all the catch-up work around that, but then build and test all the additional things that go into that is a tremendously complex exercise. So by its nature, it's something that requires a number of different teams working very well, very cohesively, without a lot of interruption. It strikes me that accountability is sort of an interesting question. Mm. Like, who pays for it? Is this a legal compliance exercise, compliance project? For the ones we're talking about is to truly automate the experience. Where's the money come from? 
You know, it varies. I think predominantly because of the accountability that rolls up to general counsel on this for most organizations, it's by and large something that they foot the bill for, or at least are at the top of that pyramid. More often than not, setting direction for, setting the tone for, making sure the right people are involved and at the table, and ultimately the management around the program is something that sits in the general counsel's office by and large. For some of our larger, more complex operations, the budget may come from other groups as well. So I've seen a number of organizations that the bill for a lot of the legwork falls into either the chief data officer, to the extent there is one, mm-hmm. the chief information security officer, or the chief information officer, only because you brought up the point about automation earlier. Even if you're not automating, even if you're just looking for a good, solid source of inventory data about where data is and where it sits and and those types of things, you need a very heavy lift from those stakeholders. What does an automated experience look like and feel like from the consumer standpoint? It's a really good question because I'm still looking for one, I guess. It's a really, (laughs) really good example. Kidding aside, there's some really good vendors out there that have built some good out-of-the-box workflow solutions. I won't name names here. I've seen other companies try to build it out of the box as well, or build it from the ground up, which is a much more complex exercise, but there may absolutely be drivers for that. What does it look like? It looks like the customer being able to go to log on to their account and to see front and center, hey, here are the rights that I have. Here's how I fulfill those rights in a a very clear and unambiguous way. So log into my account and right there, hey, by the way, be aware that you have the ability to access and delete your data under the California Privacy Act. Click here for more information, and then there's a clear intake and workflow process, and it's fairly seamless. I mean, as a customer, you don't want to dig a lot on the web page for those notices. You don't want to have to pick up the phone and call customer service and say, I don't get it. It's really streamlining and making all those things very manageable, very easy, and very self-service for customers, at least on the front end. Now, the back end, entirely different story. You know, on a previous episode, we talked a lot about identity proofing. How do you know that the person is who they purport to be? I think you're suggesting that for those organizations that have the most opportunity to embed that in the experience, these are ones where you already have a username or password as part of your account. So I guess what industries are we talking about? One is it's going to be primarily business to consumer facing companies, retail, financial services, media, telecommunications, technology companies, probably to a degree financial services and healthcare as well, although there's some nuances under the California Act that may change that a little bit. Without getting into that, think about points where you have a direct interaction with consumers and where you collect store process their personal information are going to be the most heavily hit. What does the back end look like? So for those companies where you have active engagement, you have username and password such that you are self-authenticated. What is the back-end fulfillment of either a deletion request or an access request Mm -hmm. for some of these leading-edge companies that you've worked on? What does that look like? Even for those companies, you still have a situation where you may have customers that you're targeting as part of your marketing activities that you may have their personal information for, but you may not necessarily have them in a logged in state to have authenticated already. So you still need to solve for those problems, even for those types of industries that I mentioned as well. But to answer your question very directly, what goes on in the background? (laughs) That's probably the single hardest part, I think, or the single most complex part of being able to create the seamless customer experience. Because 
what it comes down to is a clear understanding of, I guess, what people have traditionally referred to as information governance. It's what information do you have? Where is it? What's its life cycle? Where is it shared with third parties? Where is it shared between different systems internally? The reason that that's so important, Steve, is not only to be able to fulfill requests timely at scale. So you think about one or two requests, you can manually have somebody just going out there and submitting some queries. But once you start to talk about hundreds or thousands of tens of thousands of these queries, I've seen some statistics, I'm sure you and other or listeners have as well, that you know, the expectation is it's anywhere between half and 1% of your total customer base, not California customer base, but your total customer base that is expected to submit these types of requests, access and deletion requests. For most of our clients, that's a pretty big number. You're not going to be able to work that in a manual way. And you need to understand what information you have, where it is, and what's being done with it. The other part, though, that's really important as you think about it is with the deletion request, Systems don't operate in a silo. By their definition, they're systematically connected to other systems and there's data transfers back and forth. This is one of the things that a lot of my clients are struggling with right now is once you've deleted the data on a certain system, the expectation a lot of times is you're not continuing to collect information on that system after the fact. How do you make sure that downstream systems that that feeds to as well as upstream systems that it collects from also get that notice that it needs to be deleted? So it's a really complex problem. It's a data flow problem. It's a data inventory problem. But that's part of why, going back to my comment about IT or the security organization or the data organization, a lot of times footing the bill on some of this, it's because they're the ones who are typically solving that problem. And you really need to have data lineage, a data dictionary, some pretty robust data governance in place to possibly make this happen. That's exactly right. And I'm glad you touched on the concept of a data dictionary as that's something that I think is important, not only internally, to be able to help provide additional clarification around, for example, for a download file, what data that's being presented actually means, and how to interpret that data from a customer and internal standpoint. But also, as you think about, as you engage with your vendor community and your vendor ecosystem, which a lot of times are an extension of your own environment, how do you communicate to them what elements you want to pull back? Do you just dump everything? And if so, going back to the concept of a customer experience, what does that mean from a customer perspective? If you just get a file with tens of thousands of elements that may or may not actually mean anything, that's a horrible customer experience. It's really important to have not only a good idea of what data you have and where it is and what you're doing with it, but also clear Rosetta Stone of what that data actually means from a customer standpoint. It sort of strikes me for the company that really wants to automate this and make the consumer feel uh, very empowered by the experience, mm. like you probably are not asking them for the second 45 days, right? Right. Is that part of this equation that would a company ask for the 45 days immediately upon receiving or are they going to wait until late in the game? What I've seen, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'll, I should have started the session with that disclaimer. I, I know you are. I'm not that. <laughs> The way that I'd answer that question is most clients that I have are working within that 45-day period. While there may be a little bit of bleed past 1-1, very few are looking at that extra 45 days as a strategy to say we have 90 days because my understanding is that there has to be a communication out to the customer base that's impacted by that to explain why you took the extra right. 45 days. And frankly, Legally, it may be defensible, but reputationally, it could be pretty bad if you are extending that same concept out to everybody. As we move to close, for the company that really wants to move down this journey in a much more mature way or improve their maturity quicker, what are your top three recommendations? 
Well, I think we've already hit on some of them. The concept of a data dictionary and building out a good structured inventory, whether it be automated or manual, is really fundamental, I think, because so much spins off of that. I think one of the other things that I'd highlight as well from my experience that's really, really important is good governance around the process. And I realize that given where we are in the 11th and a half hour toward 1-1, probably already well down this path if you've taken this journey. The companies that I've seen succeed so far have a really clear structure around roles and responsibility, who's on point for what, a very clear vision and roadmap as to how all this fits together, and are able to execute against that with a clearly defined leader who ultimately has accountability for all this. So I think that governance piece is really important as well. Then maybe as a final closing comment, I think where I see companies fall flat is pushing so hard and investing so much in trying to meet the compliance deadline, and then just stopping because funding drops off, interest drops off, attention drops off at the executive level. It's really important to make sure that you're messaging to your executives that this is not a a one-time effort. This is something that is a matter of maturation. It's a matter of consistent improvement. It's a matter of not only being able to say that we've met the obligations under the act, but also to build additional automation, to build additional visibility, and to build a better customer experience. Well, that's cool. Yeah, I really like the last one. Durable, sustainable, and how do you continue to improve it? Listen, Orson, it's been great talking to you today. I think this was a really good subject and always great to chat with you on these subjects. And it's great to co-run the practice together. Absolutely. Steve, very much a pleasure and been looking forward to doing one of these for a while. So thanks again for the opportunity. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining and listening to the Advice Worth Keeping podcast series. Should you wish to contact us about this topic or stay connected with us on other privacy topics, please feel free to contact us. Contact me on my email address at sstein at kpmg.com or Orson Lucas at olucas, O-L-U-C-A-S at kpmg.com. Thank you for your time today. We look forward to bringing you more podcasts on information governance and data privacy.